Hello, everybody. I've made a promise to myself to stop making these intros as rigid as I have been. Anyways, my name is Rob Auchincloss, and this is the Holocene Podcast, where we seek knowledge from the most creative, adventurous, and bright among us. These individuals are storytellers, entrepreneurs, athletes, designers, and everything else in between. It is my job as the host to take what they have each learned in their own lives and codify their knowledge so that you can use their lessons in your own life. Today's episode is sponsored by the Holocene Magazine, specifically our first issue dropping on the 1st of January in 2023. It is available for pre-order now at holocene.one, our website where you can also find the show notes for this episode and everything else involved with Holocene Magazine and podcast, and that's holocene, H-O-L-O-C-E-N-E dot O-N-E. The first issue is features stories from around the world on the future of design, the realities of humanity, and adventures to truly wild places. Featuring editions from Chris Burkhardt, Alex Stroll, Wen Wenyi, Lauren Morris, Petronap, Brian Collins, and more. Each iteration also features recommendations on some of the best gear, tech, and accessories out now, as well as the best restaurants, hotels, and locations around the globe, all tested by our team. This publication will always be limited to the first run. And we are offering anyone listening a 15% discount if they use the code podcast at checkout. Today, I am joined by Matt Santamarco. Matt is a film photographer based out of Denver, Colorado. He specializes in capturing the spirit of the American West through the use of grand scenics, abandoned homesteads, and dramatic light. The images he captures make use of dynamic weather conditions and warm tones to harmonize a scene similar to the romantic paintings from the 1800s. Excuse me. During the colder months... Matt focuses his efforts into documenting the mid-century relics of yesterday, such as neon signs and Gucci-style motels. I think I pronounced that right. Anyways, please enjoy this episode between myself and Matt Santamarco. Life is either an incredible adventure or it's nothing at all. Matt, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, appreciate it, Rob. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Always. Um, so I start off every podcast by asking each guest the same question, which is what is the first thing you think about when you wake up in the morning? Uh, recently, I would say within the last three months, I usually wake up with the idea of why is my mouth taped closed? You want to explain? Yeah, absolutely. So um, what I've been doing recently is trying to optimize my sleep. And I've come across a sleeping technique where you actually tape your mouth shut. And this isn't what you might be thinking with like duct tape or anything really adhesive like that. It's it's particular tape for your mouth. You can get it on Amazon, but it's a really light adhesive kind of think of like scotch tape. Mm-hmm. But the idea with it is when you tape your mouth closed at night, it actually forces you to only breathe through your nose. And that's how I guess the body was designed was actually to breathe in oxygen through your nose only and not your mouth. Yep. And I have found, and this is anecdotally, but like I've gotten some very deep sleep doing it and I don't wake up in the night snoring or it really just forces to take deep breaths. And it's kind of been a game changer. Interesting. When you first started, did you, did you kind of feel claustrophobic is the wrong word, but like almost suffocate a little bit? No, hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, Totally natural to think that. And actually, what I will do is poke a little hole on the tape just to kind <laughs> nice. of get me that, like <laughs> safety peace of mind, I guess. So I'm not like fully whole hog into it yet, but 
yeah, they're in this tape design too to have a little hole in there, but it really does change how you breathe. So like hmm. it forces your tongue to like push towards your teeth and not in the back of your mouth. So if your tongue falls in the back of your mouth, it kind of like wakes you up. So yeah. it almost literally like physically changes how you breathe in a, in a very natural way. Hmm. I I definitely want to try that as someone that is constantly kind of seeking. And a lot of a lot of the audience are, are individuals that are always seeking to, you know, improve. So what what is the what is the do you know the brand name of which one you buy? And I'll link it below for anyone that's interested. Um, I, I don't, but really, what you, the best thing you could do is just go to Amazon and look for mouth tape, and you mouth can get tape. Got it. yeah, like a roll or some adhesive <laughs> script, like under ten bucks. Awesome. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Some sometimes the the things in in life that really give you the most amount of benefit are things that really don't cost very much money. Uh, it's it's pretty awesome. Exactly. And I used to be like in in my twenties, just like, oh, I can live off five hours of sleep. I'll I'll just hustle and grind. Mm-hmm. You know, I do my best work at night. If I get to bed at two, like I'll get up at seven. But I think the, I'm learning how important sleep is. The older I get. And yep. really just optimizing the best I can towards it. The mouth tape seemed like a really simple solution. And I, I've been talking to people about it and they're a little apprehensive about it at first because they think it's, you know, duct tape around your mouth. But yeah, I really would implore anyone to try it. I don't really think you need anything doctor medically provided in advance. And if you don't like it, you don't have to do it, but it's worth trying. Yeah. And, and as, as something that Tim Ferriss says, uh, neither of us are doctors. We don't play them on the internet. So, uh, you know, make yeah. sure you always consult your uh, medical professional before exactly, you try anything exactly. crazy. Um, but yeah, I, I think that reminds me of um, like uh, a, a big thing for me in terms of advancement in the past few years has been my meditation practice. And that's something that's literally completely free, you know, and it's given me the most amount of benefit other than, you know, anything else that I could have bought. Um, yeah. And I've heard a lot about meditating. I, have been on and off with it, but I'll just, and, you know, maybe not as much as you do, but I'll just watch like a five minute YouTube video every morning. And it's kind of like a self-guided meditation. And I find that a really good way to start the day as well. Totally. Do you have uh, any kind of journaling or priming practice that you, that you partake in? Yeah. You, you actually took the words out of my mouth. So the other thing I do, and this is before I go to sleep, is something called gratitude journaling. Mm-hmm. And it really, one, it helps me get off my smartphone at night or get away from any screens. Yeah. And probably for about 10 minutes, I have a journal and I just write down pretty kind of free flow, anything I'm grateful for. And it just kind of gets me in a better head space. And, you know, it could be five minutes. It could be two minutes, but what they call gratitude journaling. And I do it at night. And I think it's really kind of helps take perspective at the end of the day. Agreed. Yeah, it's something something I do as well, and uh, you know, I've I've developed my own practice. Do you use, um, like a blank journal that you bought, or do you use some kind of prescript prescribed journal that helps you kind of break down, uh, maybe different ideas? No, I just use like a blank notepad. Um, it's, cool. It definitely looks like kind of chicken scratch, but it, it's good to kind of read through my older entries and go through what I was thinking at the time and where I'm at today. And it, it's very kind of free flowing, but it, it's good just as like a reset at the end of the day. Totally. Yeah. It's, it's one of those practices that I think more people are getting into again. It was definitely big a long time ago. And then smartphones kind of took over our lives. And for yeah. some people like, uh, you know, I always recommend pen and paper as it seems uh, like you do as well. 
Um, but if you just have access to your smartphone, you can even take a few minutes to kind of do the same kind of practice. It still is, it makes a huge difference, right? Um, but obviously taking time away from screen is also great. Yeah, and that's, that I like have to force myself to do it because I'm like, all right, if I try anything on like an iPad or a TV, I'm just going to go down that path. So I literally have to like, like you said, pen and paper, very tactile, very kind of old school. Totally, but there's something, there's something special about still writing with pen and paper that I love. Um, yeah, we, we, we can dive into so many different things. Um, but before we go down this rabbit hole of, of you know, self-discovery, and, and unless meditation, like uh, one thing I want to kind of ask you before we move on from that um, is, have you ever considered doing your own form of meditation and not maybe following a prompt? Uh, I have. I'm definitely pretty pretty much a newbie when it comes to that. Um, I I hear people swear by it. Um, me being relatively new in this space, I, I need that kind of prompt at the beginning just to kind of get me going. But I mean, I've heard a lot about that. Same with yoga too. I mean, yeah. kind of as like a, a bro, if you will. In years past, I've been pretty adverse to any kind of yoga, but people swear by it. They like it as like a, a breath kind of controlling exercise. So maybe I'll then get down that, you know, in the future here, but mm -hmm. I do kind of like hearing about these like alternative methods that I would not have even thought about considering, you know, 10 years ago. Yeah. I mean, I think yoga in terms of controlling breath, especially through your nose, um, will definitely help. I think it'd be a nice counterbalance, not counterbalance, a nice like synchronous balance to what you're doing mm -hmm. with the mouth tape. Um, cause it's all about controlling breath really. Uh, yeah, exactly. And you know, Coming from, I used to be kind of very bro sciencey, so the totally. idea of yeah. yoga and all that just seems very alien to me. But as I get older, I'm realizing there's there could be benefits there. Yeah, I mean, I I was kind of in the same boat, and then uh, I had a girlfriend a few years back that did a bunch of it, so I started doing it, and I was still not like I I loved the feeling of stretching, but I didn't always like the prescribed movement of running through like an hour long set until. I was in, when I was moved to Seattle during COVID, there was like a hot yoga studio nearby that was still operating. And I like did that. And I have never sweat more in my entire life. Like even <laughs> when I was like, like racing mountain bikes and doing other things, but like it, afterwards you just feel so good because like every part of your body is just stretched out and open. And then like, you just also felt like you did like an hour of like breathing exercise. I don't know. It's it worth, worth a shot. I would just go like, go sign up put on some stretchy clothes and just go do it. <laughs> That's what I think you should do. So um, switching gears a little bit. So how would you describe the work you do now to your eight-year-old self? Uh, oh, so like just with photography? Yeah, or, or both. So, yeah, I mean, so like, you know, okay, eight years ago, photography. Eight-year-old self, child. not eight years ago. Yeah. Okay, yeah, it is an eight-year-old. So what I would describe to my eight-year-old self would be that I like to get outdoors, be very uncomfortable, take my time, and take photos. Now, what's funny about that is my parents will not let this go, but they used to take my brother and I, you know, camping when we were that age. And according to them, which I still don't believe, they said I complained, would complain the entire time. I would try to like sneak up my Game Boy and I would totally be disinterested. So if I told my eight-year-old self that I love being outdoors, that I love taking photos, 
I think my eight-year-old self would probably have like an identity crisis. <laughs> would just rebel. Yeah, exactly. Because to that concept at the time that my parents always insist on telling me, it's like, you always had such a bad time and you hated it. So it's kind of cool to see that come full circle. And, you know, I appreciate them giving me that, you know, experience back then, exposure. So before we dive into, um, you know, the film photography aspect, um, is, is that is that is that your main job or do you, do you also do other work? No. So I have a, a regular nine to five. Um, so I do that, you know, I work from home and then, you know, we probably dive into it later, but I really with photography have really committed to it. And I've literally become like a weekend warrior, especially mm-hmm. in the summertime in Colorado Yeah. in that every weekend, like as soon as I close up my laptop, I'm heading to the mountains. So, you know, I'm leaving super late Friday and I'm getting back super late Sunday night. So it's, there is a 12, 16 week span where I am just flying around. But right now it's, uh, I guess you could call it like a side hobby. It's my regular nine to five job. And do you think there is room in the near term future for you to either switch up the nine to five to something a bit more fluid that would allow you to maybe travel full time and, and start, start looking beyond? What do you, what do you, what do you, what do you think about that? Yeah. So the, it's kind of good and a bad thing about the working remotely now for a lot of people in that there's been a big boom for people moving to mountain towns and that's where I do a lot of my work. Yeah. However, the problem with that is we have a lot of, and I live in Colorado, a lot of people coming from out of state like New York and California that have a lot of money and they're just flooding these mountain towns that don't have a lot of like real estate and they're kind of pushing people out. So as much as I want to move to these mountain towns, the price of homes of, you know, 5X in the last couple of years and really totally. triple probably in the last like two years. So it, the only way I could have been fluid with it would be to like move to mountain town to be closer to these locations. But everyone's get, kind of getting squeezed out in that right now. I don't even know if that's really possible, unfortunately. Yeah. Have you ever thought about the method of... Um... A lot of, because I, I have a few friends that used to like rent an Aspen, for example, which is like 10x to the past five years. Um, yeah. Uh, and they basically took the van route where they basically bought a Sprinter and did that out and just found places in town to park it when they wanted to. And the beauty of that is like it allows you to like work wherever you are and then you could start, you know, especially for someone like you that is as a landscape film photographer, being able to like, oh, I'm going to spend a week and work up from Banff and I'm going to spend a week and go to BC or Seattle or Oregon or or, or wherever, you know? Um, have you ever considered that? Yeah, and I've actually kind of toyed with that. So what I've done these last two years is I do a lot of car camping. So mm-hmm. if I want to maybe extend this weekend to like three or four days, what I'll do is I'll bring my laptop with me and then maybe I'll, I'll find like a hotel or a cafe. I'll shoot sunrise in the morning and then I'll, you know, work in that cafe with my laptop and then, you know, four or five o'clock rolls around and then I'll head out to sunset and kind of close up shop from there. So I've been able to kind of do like a, a hybrid model if I wanted to extend the weekends. That's cool. So I've been able to do that, which has actually been kind of cool. So, you know, I'm not forced to come back into an office. So it is nice in that regard that I can actually make, right, instead of like a two-day weekend, I can kind of extend that to three or four days and I don't miss a lot of work. 
And it sounds like your remote job is something that when when you have to be on, you pretty much have to be on a laptop. Like you, you can't be like, you know, moving around during the day and just, you know, hopping in for random meetings you need to and then doing work freely. It sounds like you kind of have to be planted. Is that is that right? Yeah. So unfortunately, with, with this position I'm in, it's not like necessarily like a sales job or maybe you like, you know, we have two or three meetings throughout the day. It's kind of you have to be on your laptop and just ready to move levers, make put out any fires. So. I Got definitely it. do have to be, you know, active and online during those times. But what's great about shooting landscapes is I'm usually shooting sunrise and sunset. Yeah. So I can kind of push those off to the side and do both. Yeah. So, so it's, it's interesting asking photographers this cause, cause some photographers will exclusively shoot in, uh, what, you know, is golden hour area, uh, light. It seems like you do a lot of your photography, just looking at your Instagram and, and golden hour is, is that, is that, is that most of the time? Do you ever shoot any other time or? Yeah. So, I mean, certainly if you're shooting landscapes, if you really want to maximize your time, you're always going to want to shoot sunrise sunset, which is definitely something I adhere to. What I also do, what might be a little different than people, other folks do is I actually like to shoot even a little before golden hour. So golden hour is like an hour before sunset, mm-hmm. but I actually like to shoot kind of in like the late afternoon, maybe from like three to five. So you're not really getting any color. Yeah. It's a really long like light. That, yeah. What I really like about that time. And that's especially in Colorado is we usually get thunderstorms that come around during those times. So you really get a lot of like dynamic light, dynamic texture, dynamic weather. So I actually like to shoot for, a good chunk of the day. And what I really like to have in my shots are like clouds and dramatic weather. Yeah. So, and you know, my, it'd be a tip for other people is like, don't only shoot sunrise sunset. You can actually get some pretty cool stuff in like the late afternoon, which is kind of like, Oh my God, like you're never supposed to shoot in the daylight, but yeah, I, I like to shoot in those times, which is kind of funny. And there are many successful photographers, uh, you know, someone on this podcast has come on twice, Chris Burkhardt, who, if you were to scroll through his Instagram account, you would see a photo taken at literally every single time of day. Like he shot and he, you know, his, some of his stuff is in broad, bright daylight. Um, and it's really fascinating. Um, uh, cause, cause yeah, how actually, he does it. I, yeah. And I, it's funny. Cause I, I did a workshop years ago and what kind of made me, kind of drive me a little nuts was like we'd shoot sunrise and then we'd go back to the hotel at like you know in the daytime and edit photos but to me it's like well if we're already out here like we should be exploring where you could be missing shots so like totally you know you're you're missing a good chunk of time and especially if you're out like on vacation and you really want to maximize your time like to me i think you just really be shooting around the clock and you know maybe outside of lunch for me i'm like go 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 yeah um, I, I think it's one of those, I, I, it's, it's, it's so interesting. Cause like some photographers are super, super, super opinionated about this. And some are just like, Hey, I just want to look for the shot, you know? Um, and it's, it's definitely your own religion, right? Yeah. And what works for me too, is the medium I use is film and film does a really good job of really pulling down those really contrasty afternoons. Mm-hmm. And it has a really cool thing where it kind of like can smooth out a lot of what they call highlights or like the brightest part of the scene. Yeah, totally. It kind of gives it a creamy look. So really shooting in the afternoon with film 
isn't really as big as like a photography crime as you might think it would be. Totally. Um, so you almost kind of took the next topic right out of my mouth. Um, so why, why film photography? Like in, in an era where, you know, there are some pretty incredible digital cameras um, that exist, um, like why film for you? Because I think there's, it's, film is a very personal choice, right? Yeah, it is. And I can certainly probably go down like an hour tangent here. <laughs> and um, I, so for me, well, so film has had a really big, resurgence for renaissance here in probably the last six or seven years yeah um for the for the scope of this question film for me is hmm, it's really like a way to capture an image that a lot of other people aren't doing so like kind of how i came down to this path was like i would go to you know a popular spot and I'd be shooting sunrise and there'd be like maybe, you know, 10, 15 people next to me with the same cameras shooting the same thing. And what I thought was really funny was during this time, they would like also use their smartphones and smartphones are getting so good. Smartphones are kind of blurring the line between a smartphone device and like a DSLR and the, the photos they are, are yeah. same. So film in a way, when you capture it, gives the scene a very kind of like almost like a romantic look. And that's, kind of the aesthetic I go for in a lot of my shots is this kind of dreamy, warm, romantic look. So film right off the get-go already does that for me. And another nice thing about shooting film for me at least is like, it's a very limited medium in that there's only so many things I can do. So like I can only take, I don't have so many lenses. I can't do a lot of like creative compositions with my camera. So when I get to a scene, I kind of know the limitations of my camera and what I can get. And it really helps me focus on the scene. And I don't feel like I'm rushed around to get like every possible angle and like every possible shot and doing a lot of digital techniques where you, you blend exposures and blend up the field. I just kind of know what I'm getting. And it's very kind of like a harmonious process when I shoot. I love that. And I've I've shot with a lot of film photographers, and I've seen mostly one of two camps: uh, people that will literally blow through um, a few canisters of film uh, just to make sure they're getting like all the possible shots, and some that will really just take their time and be meaningful. And it sounds like you're in the latter camp. Yeah. So I, I will admit, though, like when I first started film, because I used to shoot digital before, yeah, I would blow through frames, and it yeah. was just like a habit <laughs> I had. Like it was bad. And I still can sometimes do that, especially if the weather like is shaping up to be incredible. Like I have to really control myself. But um, yeah, like shooting digital, I used to have the habit of, you know, you had unlimited shots. So, you know, what you do as a digital photographer is you'd literally compose your scene and you just basically fire off frames every, you know, 10, 20 seconds until the light was absolutely perfect. Mm -hmm. With film, you don't get that. So at least with me on my film rolls, I only get 10 shots. So I have to be super, super selective in what I do. And even if I bring extra film with me, which of course I do, if something, if the scene's going off and I run out of film, I have to like reload the camera, which can take precious time. Yeah. So I definitely do have to scale things back. And it's something I've been getting a lot better at lately. But hmm. yeah, anytime you shoot film for the first time, you're going to blow through frames very quickly. So it's it's part of the process. So in terms of 10 shots, are you, are you shooting medium format then? Correct. Yeah, I'm shooting medium format, which is most people are probably familiar with the format of 35 millimeter, which is mm -hmm. 
standard the, Kodak. The popular standard camera. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you know, it's enough to Walgreens and you get that long strip. It's very orange and on a long roll. Yeah. Shooting medium format, on the other hand, it's a bigger format, meaning the image quality is better. I mean, you can get more detail out of it, but because of its large size, you can only fit so much in your camera. And with my particular setup, I only get 10 frames per roll. And each roll costs about a dollar to shoot. So you definitely want to be very meticulous in how you fire off each frame. Totally. Um, so to kind of, I want to, I want to take a pause and, and kind of walk deep into your process, uh, not your creative process yet, but more like the actual process of film, because with digital, it's very simple as you just, as, as most people realize, it's like, you know, most modern film cameras, it's as simple, maybe not as simple as shooting with an iPhone, but in terms of like moving the images, the most you have to do is insert a memory card into a reader and then pull those images down. Yeah. So um, if you could walk just the, uh, you know, because I, I, I'm curious because every film photographer I talk to is a different process. So if could you walk me through, uh, you know, just say you just shot a roll. Or again, it's, not a, it's not a roll, medium format, excuse me. So just say you shot 10 shots um, from there what do you do until you're ready to have that final photo either to post or to print? Yeah. So this is a really a different beast too. I mean, when I first shot film, I thought it was kind of done after that, but the actual technical implementation of film after you shoot is it's another category. So after I'm done shooting the role, I send the film off to a lab to have them develop it. It's just one less thing I have to worry about. People often ask me if I develop my own stuff in like my house. I definitely don't do that. That's just one more thing to screw up. So yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. So I'm like, I'll send the film to the professionals. And what happens then is you'll get your roll back. So you might be familiar with like getting a plastic roll that's kind of orange looking, right? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of different things you can do from it. These are called the negative. What I do from there is I'll review all my negatives, which can be quite a bit. Let's say I come back from a trip and let's say I shot 10 rolls, which would be a hundred shots. Mm -hmm. I would look at all the negatives on something called a light table, which is really bright. And you can look at the negative, like with through a magnifying glass. Mm -hmm. And what I do is I review the shots and I'll select from that collection, my favorite shots, which I think are going to be best. I'll cut those individual negatives out. And then I'll send them back to another lab that specializes in scanning the negative. So they have pro big professional scanners mm -hmm. that, you know, cost thousands of dollars, you know, something you don't have at home. And then they'll scan the images and then they'll send them back to me. So that's when you can really then see the film in like, I guess, a digital version. And that's, these professional labs are very good at what they do. So okay. they'll send me back the scans. And then the last part of that process is, I'll do some editing to those scans that match my aesthetic I'm looking for. So really like the whole process can take a while, much to like my you know parents chagrin, especially like, Oh, you just got back from that trip. When are we going to see the photos? It does take a while. <laughs> a few I mean, weeks, I mom. Have, I have rolls of film. Yeah. In my fridge from like a year ago. So the whole process, if I wanted to be as quick as I could, that turnaround time between developing, scanning, and editing at the very quickest would probably take two or three weeks. Yeah. So a few questions for you, um, just to kind of break this down for the listener. Um, are you hyper particular about the scanner they use, like most are? Yes. And when I first started, I was not. Mm. And what was happening was 
I tried scanning at home and I was getting really bad results. I think part of that was having a, a big hairy husky. So I'd always get like <laughs> hair in the scans. <laughs> hair in the scans. I, yeah. It didn't matter. Like it was impossible to keep, you know, the little fur out of the scan. So totally. Yes. I'm super particular in how my images are scanned. And there's really two big scanners in the industry right now. There's something called the Frontier and an Uritsu. Mm-hmm. Um, people go back and forth. I go back and forth. But if you're getting started in film, I would 100% recommend you send your stuff off to a lab to scan it because they're going to be they're going to do the best job of it. Yeah. And these scanners to get people in. I, I think I, I watched someone recently that I followed that's a film photographer posted a photo that there was like a an OG Naritsu, like some of the older ones actually people want because they love the, the, the like accuracy or maybe there was, you know, some of, I, I've known film photographers that have literally used the same lab forever and they've switched scanners to a newer one. They've been like, why do my photos change? You know, like they, and they want, they're like, can I buy that old scanner because I love that look that comes out. And some of these old scanners even used for, you know, millions and millions and millions of scans will still sell for 30, 40, 50, $60,000 easily. Um, not to mention shipping them to where you are. Uh, so just to get, get people in mind, like, this is not like you're, you're going to Best Buy and buying like a couple hundred dollar scanner or maybe even a thousand dollar scanner at B and H. Like this is a, this is something else. This is a monstrosity of a machine. It is. And it's, it's so funny. You look at some of the scanners and they look like there's something straight out of like a Microsoft convention in like 1998. They look yeah. very <laughs> funky, very dated. They have like kind of cheesy turquoise coloring to it. And you're like, Oh my God, like that's what I'm using. But they're they're really beautiful and people can be very particular. And once you get that aesthetic, you just kind of want to roll with it. Totally. There's something I want to mention right now, just for anyone listening, um, that's kind of a non sequitur to this. But a lot of people out there have um, film at home uh, or slides, uh, you know, slide projection film or anything else that, you know, they might want to see the light of day. You know, there are always services that exist that will allow you to convert those to digital. And you don't have to go like the super high end. And and I think, you know, Matt, you can speak about this, but there are many different levels of fidelity you can work with. And especially if you're working on the budget, you just like, hey, I have some, I have 10 rolls of film that my mom shot of us when we were kids. I just want the scans so I have them. And they're just going to live in my Apple photo library. Like you're not going to be printing them, you're not going to be doing stuff. And, and there's a service out there for you that's not crazy expensive. Um. Or even buying your own scanner. Like there are some pretty decent high-end scanners for a thousand bucks that will do a really good job if you want to like, hey, I have 10,000 photos from my childhood at home. I want to just not have boxes of them anymore and have them online. Um, yeah, exactly. And, I, and there's, but, you know, Mike's camera, they're a big chain. They can do scans. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So there are a lot of options. And to your point, you want those photos to see the light of the day. You know, there's a lot of like very consumer-friendly options you can have. You don't need to like, you know, be an expert in, when it comes to scanning. And, and they'll handle all that for you. Totally. Yeah. And it's, it's, I think you're also buying that expertise. Um, I question for you on that. So, um, I've ordered, uh, processing and, uh, scans from a variety of different online film, uh, companies. I think like the one that comes to mind is Rich's photo lab. I think they're out in California. Um, there are a few options they ask you when you're like, just say you pick the scanner and then they, they have another set of options. Are you particular about exactly what kind of settings they're using as well? Or do you kind of deal with that and, and like the, and in terms of editing the, the photo you get? Yeah, it's interesting. So film labs, these professional ones, they can either have the scan of the image is kind of very flat and just kind of like very untouched. Or they can have kind of like built-in preferences, like you've mentioned here, 
where maybe they'd be like, okay, do you want the images brighter? Do you want them more contrasty? Do you want them more muted? Richard's photo lab that you mentioned, they have a lot of kind of, I don't want to call them presets, but preferences. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, for anyone doing this, I would actually recommend not doing those preferences. I've done that once before. And if you don't like it, then you're kind of stuck with it. Totally. So if you're getting started for the first time, I would actually have the lab just scan it very, very flat and neutral. That way you can kind of hone into the craft when you edit them later. But if you have a lab kind of give it that preference, that's kind of a lane you have to go down. And if you're doing it for the first time, I yeah. would actually just have them do it very flat and kind of neutral. Okay, cool. Um, and uh, what was I going to ask you? I, my mind just literally blanked out. Um, so when you receive your files, I'm guessing, you know, you're going for the highest end output in terms of resolution. So are you guys, are you getting TIFFs or JPEGs? Uh, what, what is the, what is the format? Yeah, I'm getting TIFFs. And actually, if you want to get the most high fidelity image, you could do something called drum scanning. Mm. So this drum scanner can, it's like a very specialized scanner, even more than some of these labs. And there's only you know, kind of a handful in the United States, but if you had a drum scan, you can make the image. I don't know how many megapixels, but it's, you know, it's like a hundred megapixels. It's pretty, pretty epic with that. But yeah, when you're scanning the images, anything with like a TIFF file, or I think it's two megs. I'm not too technical with that, but like for me, I always want the highest resolution because the idea hopefully is I'll make a print of it. Yeah. So if you're getting scans, you know, the image is going to be a, a really nice one. Have them scan it with the highest resolution possible. Totally. Um, now, once you get the images, um, which are delivered via email or usually, mm -hmm. or, or some kind of digital file hosting system. Um, do you then put them into Lightroom or do you keep them as individual images and edit them and like maybe like Photoshop? Like what is, what is that process from there for you? Yep. Uh, and this is kind of the big controversy controversy right now with film photographers is like, okay, once you get your scans back, like, are you quote allowed to ed edit the image? Right. Cause mm. Yeah. And with film and like, isn't the idea of film supposed to have a specific look and like is editing the image like going too far. So there's definitely a lot of like points I can see on either end of the equation here, but really what happens though, is when you get your image scanned, the person scanning the image is actually technically editing the image themselves. So they're behind the scenes and they're actually adding in like, Oh, does this image need more green, more magenta? So yeah. even if you get your photo back, it's not a true representation of like a necessarily like a flat image. It's already been modified by someone behind the screen. So to me, I actually, I like editing my images after the fact. Um, the less I can do, the really the better. I don't want to be editing an image for that long. But what I'll do is, it's kind of funny, I'll use Lightroom Mobile. So I actually edit mm. it on my phone. So I don't do yeah. a big screen. And the reason for that, which could be interesting you know, for your viewers too, is what I found is what I used to do is edit images on my computer, but then I would upload it to my iPhone and the colors and the contrast would not match. It looked totally yeah, different. Screen. Yeah, exactly. And I would, you know, calibrate my screen and all kind of the techie stuff and it didn't really matter. So to me, at least for most of my audience, I would say, you know, 95% of it, they're going to look on the smartphone. So I want that image to look like how I edit it what it's going to match probably on Instagram, right? Totally. So I had exclusively on my phone through the Lightroom mobile app. Yeah. And that's, that's become pretty common. I actually switched from my computer to using my iPad because the iPad and the iPhone usually have a very similar screen and I just wanted the bigger mm -hmm. real estate. 
and also mm-hmm. the touch controls with the pencil, especially in Lightroom Mobile for iPad, really yep. uh, makes it interesting. Especially because like you can because of the USB interface with the iPad, you can directly import if you have a digital camera. Like the so like I can plug in even because I use uh, I use a Canon R5 which uses XQDs, um, and uh, that involves like a special reader, and I can plug that directly into the iPad, and the iPad can actually power that mm-hmm. reader, which is really nice. Um, so basically, just takes out that other step of having to process them. But it's yeah. interesting, um, you know, for anyone out there like that is thinking ahead with the new European ruling for iPhones um, that they have to switch to USB C. Um, there's a good, there's a good chance that they're gonna include the same I/O hardware in the iPhone next year that they're gonna include in the that they include in the iPad already. So also turning the iPhone into like a power interface where if you want to connect it to some kind of peripheral or a display or even just like, you know, because they're pretty powerful machines, right? So if you want to broadcast a presentation or even uh, plug in a memory card reader to your iPhone, I think that is we, we are getting closer and closer to that, um, which is really exciting. Um, and what's nice about that too is you save money on instead of buying you know some two thousand dollar you know Mac HD screen, I, I'm never tempted to like buy those because I just work directly off iPhone or an iPad. <laughs> yeah, case. that's a really good workaround as well. Um, and, and and so like I know we could we could we could you know go on this subject all day, but kind of bring it back to film photography. Um, I know you like most film photographers don't really focus on the kit you're using. Um, but I think people are curious. So like, what, do you have a favorite camera that you use that you just love shooting with? Yeah. So I actually only use one camera. Um, I used to have a digital, I sold that off. Some people also kind of like to have like a combo set, like a big one and a small one. Mm -hmm. I haven't found like a small handheld camera that I like yet. Um, now if you're getting started in film, I would highly recommend you use something called a point and shoot. What's great yeah. about the point shoot is it's 35 millimeter, which means it'll be cheaper. But a point shoot is great because it has all the automatic exposure and all that. The focusing is done in camera. So you literally just point and shoot. <laughs> so if, if you're looking to get started in a film, I would highly recommend you use one of these. And the point shoots are pretty popular in like the 90s and early 2000s. So for the most part, you can get a pretty cheap one. But yeah, eBay or vintage said, camera store. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, some of them gone up in price quite a bit. Totally. <laughs> Which comes back to the camera I use, unfortunately. So the camera I have now is called a, a Mamiya 7. Yeah. I bought this camera back in 2015, back when no one really used it. The price of that camera has gone up three times the amount in a couple of years, which is kind of sad to see. It is such a great camera, but it's unfortunately priced a lot of people out. Um, they don't make it anymore. It was built in the 90s. But what's great about the Mamiya 7 is it's been recognized as like one of the sharpest cameras in the medium format space. Mm-hmm. And what I really like about it too, is it's very lightweight. So there's a lot of other medium format cameras that are like pretty bulky and heavy. I mean, you know, they're built well, but because I do a lot of backpacking, hiking, I want something as sharp and as light as possible. And this camera equipment really match maximizes that because it's light. And then the image quality is fantastic. Yeah. I, I I was just I just typed it into eBay to see what you were talking about and yeah they definitely have gone up in price I've looked at it in a while yeah it, it's it's so bad um, for those for those out there who who don't want to spend the time to look um, it looks like a combination between a lens and the body is going for anywhere between uh, three and five thousand U S dollars um, 
and obviously different different levels of condition. Some are going slightly cheaper that have been really beat up. Um, and with that, what what uh what 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 focal length lens do you use? Uh, so the one I use the most, and this is just with like landscapes, is a sixty-five millimeter, which on the equivalent of a thirty-five millimeter camera is about a thirty-five millimeters, which is mm-hmm. a great balance between like tight enough if you want to shoot kind of portraits or walking around day-to-day stuff, but wide enough if you want to shoot landscapes and you want to get like a lake and like a mountain peak in it. So mm-hmm. usually what I suggest for anyone who's looking to get into the system or really medium format in general, is you start with a, a camera lens that is about 35 millimeter wide. That way you can kind of get the best of both worlds. It's not too extreme on a zoom or not too extreme on like a wide angle. Agreed. Um, And something you said that you glazed over that you and I are both familiar with, but the average person might not, is that you said that uh, a 65 on a medium format is basically a 35. Do you want to kind of just give a quick explanation as to why? Yeah. So the reason for that is the format itself, medium format, it's a larger negative. And because you're shooting on what they call medium format is the the sensor or the, the film is going to re- like the formatting is actually different. So when you shoot on digital, it's something called like, I guess they call it a crop, but mm-hmm. there is a, you kind of have to translate the, the images if you're shooting on quote medium format. So I just always like to tell people if you're shooting on medium format, shoot with the lens that's about 60 millimeters, which is the equivalent of 35 or so, um, just kind of get you the best of both worlds. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating. Cause you know, to, I was trying to explain this to a, uh, someone on the plane who I was just like editing photos, pulled up my camera. They're like, wow, like what is how they, the way they asked it was interesting. They said, how much can you see with that lens? And I was like, I know what you're asking. Um, but it's, it's not as simple as that. And I was like, well, it really depends on the camera you're using. They're like, well, isn't like, 35 mil 35 mil i was like no <laughs> like whether you're yeah. using like a a crop digital sensor a full-size digital sensor a medium format um and then you know and then it gets even crazy when you talk about cinema cameras or even old film movie cameras like it's yeah so so you know so basically like the way i explain to people is like uh the combination of what lens you're using and what body you're using basically determines your view your plane your view of field right um so just play around and, and learn what you like there's no and, right and answer. Also, yeah. And from like my non-scientific perspective, what I think is a little different too about medium format is you can shoot pretty wide with it, meaning you get like a very wide frame and it doesn't distort the image as much. So like yeah. if you want to shoot something very wide, typically on like a digital camera, it'll like bend the image to kind of fit in the, the lens. So like if you're shooting a building, it might start kind of looking sideways or like a tree. Medium format, and I don't know the optics behind this, but it does a really good job of getting everything in frame and not warping it too much. So, like, if you're shooting a straight building, it usually ends up pretty straight. Whereas if you're shooting digital or, like, a crop sensor, things start to kind of bow in towards the middle, which can kind of be a nuisance. Yeah, from what I understand about optical systems, it basically has to do with the this this the opening size of the of the lens combined with the size of the frame, um, and it's just because medium format cameras have that larger opening. I'm talking in layman terms to the audience. Um, yeah, it, it allows it to move through. It's interesting because I have a I have a few friends who are wildlife photographers um, who have been professionals for you know 20, 30 years. And they, you know, a lot of wildlife photographers would back in the film days would 
almost exclusively shoot uh, medium format for more of the up close and then 35 mil for like long distance. Um, and there's a camera out now that a lot of them that were like strictly film photographers, they will use this camera called the Phase One. I'm sure you've heard of it. Oh, yeah, um, I've seen that. And it's this crazy expensive camera, but all of them say it's like the closest thing to shooting film and digital they've seen. And I have worked with a few of these people and seen the just the raw images that come out of this camera. And it's I haven't seen quality that good since film. Um, it's pretty amazing. So if you if you if you particularly Matt or anyone out there has a chance to play with one at any point in time, like I I know you're a big film guy. And I'm not trying to get you off film. I don't want you to buy that. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm saying just play with one because I think you would be happily surprised. Yeah, uh, it's, I've, I've seen one of these out in the wild. And for anyone listening, these cameras range at about $60,000, $50,000. So you're literally having like a, a high-end luxury car with you. Totally. And the, the, the guy I saw with it like became an instant celebrity with the other photographers around him. Everyone was like oh, kind of yeah. gawking it. Like, oh, my God, I've never seen one of these things. Um so yeah, they're quite the special camera for sure. Definitely at the price point is pretty astronomical, but yeah, when you see one of those things in the wild, you kind of stop what you're doing and kind of geek out on it. Totally. But I, I what excites me about phase one is that, you know, they to kind of borrow the, the Tesla approach, you know, they fully know the first model can only be used by like the most lucrative professionals who are selling 20 to $30,000 prints, you know, fine art photographer, so to speak. Um, but eventually they want to, they want to bring the same technology down to the masses. Um, and they'll probably always stay at like a professional level, but like, I think 10 years, you know, five to 10 years from now, having that same technology in a camera that cost $8,000 is something that's a lot more accessible to a lot more professionals. You know, if someone's a full-time studio photographer, um, and they don't have massive clients, you know, eight grant for a camera that'll last years is, is definitely a, a valid investment, right? Um, and that's what people don't realize, like, this stuff's expensive. And, like, I don't even want to know how much money per year you spend on film, on scanning, and on processing. Um, but you, you said that it averages out to be, is that is that a dollar per shot in terms of, like, the cost of the, the raw film, the processing, and the scanning? Uh, yeah, I, I wish that was the case. It's about a dollar <laughs> per shot. And then if you ever see an image that next to my Instagram, just know that whole lifestyle process probably ended up costing four to five dollars which doesn't sound bad but <laughs> a thousand behind a the scenes you technically yeah. don't know how many rolls of shooting which i'll keep that i guess to myself that's but, fine um, you do you yeah <laughs> yeah no, I, i'm facetiously joking about that of course but um yeah there's definitely a cost involved with, with that as well but um what's nice about digital is kind of to your point is it's now kind of hitting a point where it's very consumer friendly and you can get some really spectacular images without breaking the bank. Totally. What was, you know, kind of with digital back in like the early 2010s, it was like, if you were an early adopter and you were paying, you know, upwards of tens of thousands of dollars for a lens or a camera, it would almost be like obsolete, you know, three or four years. We've now hit that threshold where any consumer can buy, you know, probably a thousand dollar camera and make some pretty impressive prints. So Digital's caught up and it's a really it's in a really good spot if you're wanting to get started off for the first time and make any kind of like wall prints. You're in a really good spot. Yeah, but it was just like those early adopters back in the 2000s that were, you know, buying these crazy cameras and they were now like worse than the iPhone 5 at this point. 
Yeah, and and even with the modern iPhones and, and the quality they're outputting, especially with the new 14 Pro um, and being able to shoot in Pro mode and, and get a 48 megapixel uh, photo, it's still very flat. Um, and people, what I what I mean when I say that is that there's a certain level of depth and dynamic range that you get from specific digital cameras and definitely from most, if not all, film cameras um, that is definitely lacking but for the average person that's like taking photos of their family or a big event or their oh, yeah. anything it's great it's perfect um oh i'm a huge advocate for the iphones now like they've really caught up like anyone going on any trip especially with the iphones in the last like year year or two you can get some pretty good stuff now they're limited in terms of like zooming in so you, if you're going on a safari or something you're not going to really be able to get too much on the iphone but yeah, if you're in a pinch, and especially with me shooting film, I always like to shoot on my iPhone just to have a backup just in case. Yeah. But yeah, with the iPhones these days, and I know some have been rolling out, you know, crazy number of megapixels, like 50 or 100 or something and crazy like that. But yeah, it's 48 on be a new one. Yeah. Um, um, the only thing I was, not to cut you off, but um, I'm I'm a big Apple fanboy, as, pe- as everyone listens to this podcast knows, <laughs> and I mentioned a lot, but um, the next year's uh, iPhone lineup, um, it's rumored that like the the larger pro model, um, like what's normally like the pro max, I guess is what it's called now, they're gonna call that the ultra, um, to like kind of match up with like the Apple Watch Ultra, um, to kind of create the like mm. highest end uh phone. And just like Samsung did last year, there's a good rumor that it's like they're gonna they're gonna have a periscope lens as one of the lenses, which basically like moves uh lens elements inside the actual body so you could get potentially like up to 20 to 25 X optical zoom or like a hundred X digital zoom with the, with the same 48 megapixel sensor only in that larger size phone, which would be awesome. Like, you know, being, being able to get that level of fidelity on uh, a handheld with stabilization. I mean, that's, yeah. I think that's where we're moving, but it's one thing, blurring the line for sure. Yeah. And, and, and that, but the, the exciting thing to me is that, uh, you know, I shoot with one of the more popular recent, um, probably like one of the most advanced digital cameras, which is the the Canon uh, EOS R5. Um, I guess it's an RF, not an EOS, but um, you know that is 48 megapixels. It's a massive sensor. It has you know like 16 stops of dynamic range, which is like getting close to like a, a film territory because film is usually 20 to 24 is kind of the like. But what, what you shoot, I think, is like 24 stops of dynamic, dynamic range. Um, but like we're, we're, it's getting closer and closer to that. And, and I think that I don't think an iPhone will ever truly replace like a proper massive setup with, because proper glass just goes so, so far, especially in a digital camera. Like I tell people, like if you're getting started out with digital, digital photography, like invest money in the lens and just get a simple body that works and you'll be much happier with the photos because the glass really matters. And the same thing with film photography is like, the lenses are super important, but also the film you're using is important and the what what the camera's capable of. Like it's it's all important. And so what I tell people is like I don't think at the highest level, like an iPhone will ever replace a digital camera look, will ever replace the film look, because people are looking for different things. Right. It's like you shoot film because that's what you like to do, not because you think it's like it, it, it's your preferred mode, you know? Um and you're not looking for it to replace anything because it is what it is, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, so a, a, a popular thing that I, I hear, like, you know, there are always naysayers. There's always the mob on Twitter. Um, and so, and Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. So I want to ask you this question. Um, some 
advocates for sustainability would say that film is like inherently unsustainable because you are having, you know, you are buying something physical and then you're using that. And there's a lot of waste in the process of developing film, which is, which is true. How do you feel about like film on the sustainability side? And and what would your response be to someone that kind of, you know, maybe came up to you while you're shooting and says like, Hey, how do you feel about the sustainability of, of what you're doing? Yeah, I've actually just recently heard that argument. Um, and it's actually kind of the reason why I like film so much is it's a finite resource. Like, I don't know if it's going to be around in, you know, five, 10 years. And that's kind of one of the draws what I like about it so much is like, once you capture it on film, you have it essentially for the rest of your life. Like it's a medium that can outlive you like a digital file, you know, those can become corrupted over time and you know, they can kind of get lost in the ether, but an actual film negative can stay with you, which I really like. And, stored you know, properly, of course. <laughs> yeah, stored properly. Yeah, you don't want it, you know, somewhere cool, not collecting dust, you know, out of the sun. But that's honestly kind of one of the draws I like about it so much is like, yeah, I do understand that there is some chemical waste behind it for sure. And, you know, there's really nothing you can do about it. And just the idea that maybe it won't be around for that much longer is just another reason for me to go out and capture it on this, you know, this incredible medium that you'll never be able to get again. Cause uh, you know, I see digital cameras and they can do like the film emulations too. And some of they can get pretty close, especially if you're shooting portraits, but I've never seen a film emulation on a digital camera or like on a Lightroom preset match to anything I can get with landscapes. So to me, I'm just going kind of whole hog on it right now and just capturing it as much as I possibly can. Yeah, and I've I've told a few I have a few friends who are venture capitalists who back some of the companies that I I start and play with, and a lot of them ask me like what what is like, you know, because I'm big into the like passive investing of collectibles, like you know whether it's like you know graded Pokemon cards or old Lego sets, because like you know nostalgia sells. But I also told them sure. I said look, um, you know even though Kodak is you know ramping up their factory again because film is becoming so popular because there's a shortage there is a, a closing window of film and to the venture capitalist that is able to buy a ton of film and store it in like, and like buy an old fridge warehouse and just like yeah. normally store dairy and just like store a couple million rolls of film like that. That's a serious hedge because you know, it's, I think it's one of those things that will, it's, I don't think film is ever going to get cheaper than it is right now. And I say that I say that genuinely. Like, like anyone out there wants to get into film, like now is the cheapest it'll ever get. People are like, "Oh, it's a fad. I'm waiting for it to get cheaper." It's not. Um, yeah. So. It, yeah, cameras have gotten more expensive. The film, to your point, has gotten more expensive. Um, yeah, that's kind of interesting that you know can almost make an investment on it because of the scarcity behind it. Um, we saw you can invest in anything. Yeah, it was a Kodachrome back in 2009. That film stock was discontinued because it was particular to a certain sort of processing. And once that plant closed down, they couldn't make it anymore. So totally. yeah, this stuff can get pretty valuable and you know, it might not be around too much longer. And if you really like the look of film, I would you know, get into it now and shoot as much as you can. Yeah. I, I think we have one more generation genuinely because Kodak is, is, you know, they restarted one of their old factories. They shut down that produces film. Um, I think we, we probably will have one more generation of um, like a, uh, I could see a new film line that Kodak comes out with to kind of capitalize on this movement, like maybe like an advanced version of Portra, um, something like that. I think would be, I think it'd be cool to see like that there are people are still making advancements in, in this field. Um, but I will also look at the, 
the the camera producers um you know one of the most famous uh and popular in terms of like pop culture is Leica and they just started remaking the M6 again um which is like a legendary 35 millimeter film camera and they're now making it brand new uh for the first time in I think a couple decades um which is awesome it also shows you just like how popular it is and they this isn't like a limited thing they said they're like they're going to keep making it it's like became a a modern model again which is really interesting uh, yeah, and what's also great too is like the film movement in terms of demographics, it's right now being dominated by you know Gen Z and millennials, which is great. Totally. I, I don't necessarily know what Gen Z's experience been with film because you know they were probably born in you know the mid nineties, yeah, ninety seven or later. Yeah, okay, exactly. And so by the time they were you know seven or eight, things have pretty much started to move to digital or yeah, digital. So it's really cool to see the really young generation get involved with that. And if they can kind of carry that to your point, I think film can stick around for another generation. Now, what I've seen just out in the field is like the Gen Xers, the boomers are really not that interested in film because they used to shoot that and they're kind of over it, kind of over it. They want the convenience. They want the convenience. But it's almost done like an inverse now where like you would think the generation grown up on like immediacy, instant gratification, is done a 180 and gone to a medium that's very slow yeah. and more methodical. I think it's really cool to see that. And yeah, to your point, oh, awesome. I, I can definitely see at least the demand. I don't know, you know, the manufacturing part behind it, but the demand for film leveraging a younger generation could easily be around for another generation, of course. Totally. Which is, which is awesome. I think the app Dispo really helped. I don't know if you're familiar oh, with it. Oh, Yes. Um, and to people that don't know, um, this app that was co-launched, uh, I think, it, I think it died when David Dobrik got canceled. I don't know where he stands right now in, in terms of like cancel. I don't really believe in cancel culture, but I'm sure he'll, he'll have a career. I'm not worried about him. But anyways, him and, uh, Alexis Ohanian, the creator of Reddit, who runs a venture fund called 776, uh, also the husband of Serena Williams, uh, fun fact, um, he created this app with David, um, called Dispo, where basically, I think individuals could take something like, uh, I think it was like 10 or 12 shots um, in the app and then they'd have to wait 24 hours and come back to the app and that was like the development process and then they would get their photos. And it was like very popular for a while because it kind of, it, it, it created this this natural window of waiting and processing. And so because people knew that they had to wait and because they had a limited time, people started caring a lot more about what they were shooting and not, and like focusing on like, I need to get this right the first time. Not like I'm going to take 15, 12. Like you'll always see that person outside, you know, like a restaurant or a club or like the beach at sunset and their friends are taking literally 200 photos of them on their iPhone and they're picking one and deleting the rest, you know? Um, and I think it's kind of beautiful that we're, pushing back to this idea that like digital waste is still waste people are like oh well it's just it's just numbers it's it's just it's just extra bytes and bits but i think the thing i think about is that if you are taking 200 photos that you have to take one photo even if you're deleting them that's still space on your phone until they get wiped off that is taking up which is then space on the cloud which is then trying to hold that and process that and make sure they don't get lost and that's just more data centers that have to be built. That's more water that has to be used to cool down these data centers. And it's more just things and people and heat and energy. So people, I, I do think when people are like, oh, film's so unsustainable. Um, it's it's terrible for the environment. Like there's so much waste. It's like you can see the waste with your own eyes. You're seeing the packaging it comes in. You're, you understand the chemicals it takes in the process. But like digital things also have waste. 
and making an iPhone is a lot more wasteful than making like the way they used to make these cameras because there was re- there's no like there's may- there's a maybe a battery in some of them but most of them have like very little electronics in them a lot of glass a lot of metal um and so I, and especially because like your cameras I'm guessing you bought pre-owned right you obviously didn't buy it new um so like it had yeah, got a man, full life so yep so like these Actually, these yeah, sorry. A stat that there was one trillion digital photos taken just last year. Yeah, and I bet it's going to get to a point in a year or two where it's one trillion a month, and then one trillion a week, and then one trillion a day, and then you know, one trillion photos, assuming like a basic size, is still assuming like two megabytes of photo, which is pretty much average these days for the average smartphone. It's actually higher, but I'm taking into account older smartphones and other things. Like that's a lot of data. You know, and it's, it's going to get to a point where literally it's like an extra data center a day just for the photos people take on their cameras. And I think that's the, the thing we're trying to get to is like Apple is doing working very hard on making higher quality photos with better compression because um, because it's amazing what happens when you reduce the number like the file size by 40 percent on an iPhone, because that means they have to build like 40,000 less square feet of data centers that year, um, which is yeah, something that people think about grows and have you heard something called i think it's called moore's law or something where like every 18 processor power like exponentially grows every two years or something like that 18 months yeah okay yep exactly yeah so So, yeah to your point with that unseen no no sorry we keep cutting out um unintended consequences of layman effects um it, it it all matters and i think with film you are a lot more deliberate um and I was actually excited because I I first learned photography on film. I was like super, uh, I just had the right parents, I think. Um, my parents used to give me like a little Kodak color point and shoot. Like you'd buy the, I think it was like back in the day, like $4. They came with a little cardboard packaging and you got 36 shots maybe. Um, and that was like every trip of like a week, whether we were going to visit grandma or like going to Paris on like our big trip, like we wait every few years to go on. Um, like I get one of them. And so like, I was always just like, oh, I only have this many shots. And like looking back at those photos, it's awesome. Cause I was like, okay, this is what I was interested in. And for me in France, it was all about the trains. Uh, cause I like I like trains. Right. But, um, you know, it was cool because I first learned on, I was like in, I think I was eight years old, nine years old. And I took a summer photography class with black and white film photography. And we also had to develop our own photos. So like I, hated this idea because my dad just got one of the first digital cameras at the time then he goes he was an architect on the job site so he had to be taking photos of like updated work to show the clients so digital made complete sense for him and saved him a ton of time but for me i was like i love the art of taking it but i was like oh god it's gonna take me four hours to get this one shot and i don't like that uh, so I, um but that was a weird non sequitur for me but I, I think that what i'm saying to people is that film is something that i think everyone should try and it definitely teaches patience and an appreciation for whatever you're shooting and like the art of doing things for the sake of doing them. A hundred percent. And also too, it can really break you out of like a creative rut. And that's kind of where I was before shooting digital. It was like, it all kind of looked the same. And once I went to film, it actually opened up a new creative outlet for me when I got it out of this rut and I've been able to kind of develop my own individual style. And I, I see that with a lot of people too. Like, what's really great about the film community is it's really tight knit. And what's really nice about this community is like people like to share kind of how they shoot, what they shoot locations. 
Whereas digital, there's a lot of, I see kind of gatekeeping. Yeah. It's more kind of like a lone wolf approach where, you know, and I've, that's kind of the space I used to come in was like kind of lone wolf. I do my own thing. I want to get my own shot. Yeah. But between film and Instagram, it's really kind of opened up things up from like a community sense where people will go out shooting together in groups. They'll really share the experience and not maybe so much the output because, you know, maybe they won't even see a photo for months. Yeah. So it's really this cool shared environment that I've seen a lot of film photographers share which is quite different, but really it's something I was not expecting, but definitely a welcome change of pace for what I used to do. Totally. And, and I was about to ask you, like, are there any film photographers that you look up to right now? Yeah, I would say like kind of the OG main guy right now. He's out of Colorado too. His name is Alex Burke. Mm -hmm. um, you can link him in the show notes. Will do. He's been such a great resource for me because he provides free digital eBooks and he lays these things out in terms of like what film stock, you know, if you want to shoot, like it'll give you this look, the cameras, the how-to, developing, processing. He does everything soup to nuts for free. And that's really how I learned to start. So I definitely want to give him a shout out. And he does incredible work. He shoots with uh, something called large format, mm -hmm. which is even more meticulous than medium format meaning he only has one shot he basically uses a sheet of film and then he's done so he has to get the shot bang on right the first time and then he has to reload the camera if he wants another one so these guys who shoot large format they're another level so they might be like if you've seen ansel adams back in the day mm -hmm. they kind of have their head under a cloth they're really meticulous in how they shoot so alex burke to me is like the landscape og photographer right now and could you spell his name? Because I'm looking, I'm trying to find him. Yeah. Uh, Alex Burke is Alex Burke photo. Got it. Yes. I'll, I'll link him Burke, below. I think there's like a musician yeah. called Alex Burke. That's what it was. So, and I was like, exactly. So yeah. Losing really. Photo. Yeah. That'll get you there. Yeah. Followed by a few people I know. Yeah. So, um, oh, it's cool. Cause I like how he, sh he has the, uh, he, and some of his frames online, you can see like the uh, Kodak, uh, kind of like, what can we call that? Like the, it's like Kodak Ektar 100, 1091, where it just shows you like the actual yeah, he, full size scan. Exactly. That's awesome. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah he's, so he's a great resource. I'll link him below. Is there anyone else that you look up to besides that? That like you just like maybe the someone that's not in maybe not landscape. Someone's like a completely different uh, area that you just yeah. So yeah, Alex Burke specifies in landscape. Another person I looked up to who does kind of a combination of landscape and like lifestyle. Lifestyle is a very popular mm -hmm. genre now. Um, his name is Portra Poppy. Hmm. he's a younger guy and he's really leaned into film. I think he's only been shooting for a year wow. and he's gained like 50,000 followers on Instagram. His stuff is that good. So if you look up Portra underscore Poppy, P-A-P-I, he does a lot of great stuff. And I think it could speak to a lot of people who want to do like kind yeah. of the lifestyle stuff behind the scenes. Oh, yeah, a really nice by yeah. So I'll link both of these below. Sure. Um, and I do love this. I, I love, I've seen this more in film and digital, but there've been people that have picked it up and blown up because they just find their calling. And I'll be honest with you. I have a very nice digital camera. Um, like it's, as I mentioned, like it's pretty much the top of the line, not anymore, but was the top of the line Canon R5, uh, like, like mirrorless camera with one of their nicest lenses. And I, it lives in my backpack, but I'll be honest with you, Matt, like I have, I took it out for the first time two days ago in months and I've still had it with me the entire time because I've just like lost that interest in 
not using it. I still love using it. I love it for almost like taking videos with it more than photos. Um, but like, I definitely have lost that vibe. So for me, and, and that desire. So for me, like getting back into film in the coming months, something that I'm super interested in doing because I just miss it. And I really think it'll help me rebirth that love for photography and being honest. Like I, I haven't talked to many people about this. My girlfriend, I've, I told her, I was like, I just don't want to use my camera. I like my iPhone. Um, but it's really interesting because I'm glad you brought that up because it's true. Like I, I am definitely burnt out of using my digital camera. I think it's great for a lot of scenarios. Sometimes I'm like, you know, sometimes I'm in that place where I want to take a time lapse or I want to shoot something on video and it's fantastic for that. But sometimes I just, I wish I just had like a small 35 mil, um, manual camera that I could just like put the time and effort into smashing my head every once in a while into like doing it. Right. Uh, yeah. And I might get a little philosophical here, but I think one of the draws shooting film is it utilizes the concept of delayed gratification. Yes. Whereas when you're shooting digital, you know exactly what you're getting and you you're in the moment and you see it and you're like, okay, great. And like your dopamine receptors are firing and you're like, okay, great. But when you shoot film and you shoot your image, you don't know, even myself, I shoot a ton. I don't really know what the image is going to look like until I see the developed film, you know, weeks down the line. And the satisfaction of nailing a shot is so rewarding that like yeah, being going through the process again it, it almost like rewires your, you know, getting a little deep here, but it like rewires your no, brain. No, I love it. Like, Go deeper. <laughs> you just want to do it again. Yeah. Um, and I, talking to a few other film photographers, like it's amazing. Some of them will be like, oh, I fucking nailed that shot. I know it's going to be great. And then they see the shot and they're like, wow, that's not good. And then the shot they were like, oh, I'm not sure how it's going to turn out. Ends up being like one of the best shots I've ever shot, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think there's a beauty in that. One of the photographers I followed since he was on Instagram is Joe Greer. Um, and I know he's, um, some people love him, some people hate him, right? like any any photographer. Um, but for me, just, I love that he started back in like OG Instagram with an iPhone. And then instead of picking up digital cameras, like a lot, so a lot of people, let me just give the audience some context. A lot of, a lot of the big photographers that are, have large followings on Instagram, um, basically, started were either photographers when Instagram came around and were able to capitalize on an audience or were people that used Instagram as a way to get into photography and usually start with their iPhone or some other small camera and then decide, as they said, okay, wow, I can make some money from this. I'm, I, I love this. I want to get into it. And I'd say nine out of 10 went digital and one out of 10 went film. And Joe is just one of those guys that stuck with film and kind of like went in hardcore. Um, I think he like, he said he spent like his rent money for two months on buying his friend's old Leica M6. Um, that was like beat to hell. And like, but he, it's like still his favorite camera to shoot with. I, I, I love, I love like the romantic waxing poetic nature of film. Um, and Joe Greer, someone I, I, I like, I, I love his work. Um, I love a few others work. I mean, there are also digital photographers now that used to shoot on film and some of their film stuff is my favorite. Like Paul Nicklin is a great example the wildlife photographer. Um, I watched a talk with him at his at his gallery in New York City when he had it um, with his wife Christina Mid Christina Mittermeier Mittermeier, um, and he was talking about how like he his first assignment for Nat Geo he was up in like Nunavut in the winter time like capturing uh, like walruses or polar bears or something and he said he was trudging a sled with like a thousand rolls of film that weighed a couple hundred pounds just <laughs> oh, to get yeah. like a couple shots for Nat Geo you know um, because they had yeah. no budget. 
Yeah, back then. They were like, okay, here's a thousand rolls of film. Um, just oh please gosh. please make sure this isn't because of the scanner at the airport. Um, <laughs> back when they had the really <laughs> bad x-ray scanners at airports. Actually, that's, that's, that's a quick, interesting foray. When you travel with your camera, um, do you have any basic tips for people for bringing your camera and your film through the kind of TSA process? Yeah, 100%. And I actually get asked this quite a bit. And yes. So you do want to be careful with your film in an airport. What you do not want to do is put your film in a check bag. And that's where, you know, they take it behind the scenes and they mm-hmm. load it on the airplane. Those x-rays they use for the baggage carousel Blaster. are super strong. And it'll, it'll like nuke the film. So what you do not want to do is don't check a bag with film. Now, what I do is I carry my film with me. And then when I get to the x-rays, when they kind of pat you down, what you can do is just, you simply ask them to hand check your film. You know, just having like a Ziploc bag. Yep. And they'll bring that film around the scanner mm-hmm. and they'll, they'll check it individually without sending it through the scanner. Yep. And you're totally fine. Yeah. Now, there has been one time where this, and this only happened once, where they said they can't hand check it and the film had to go through the little scanner there, you know, with the, do your shoes and your backpack. I was super worried about it. It went through the scanner and I was, you know, a little upset by it, but it actually did not damage the film. Now, I think if you have a high ISO film, like 1600, it would. But I shoot a lot of 400 speed, 160, even 800, and it was fine. So Cool. That's Yeah. So just as long as you don't send the film through the baggage check, you'll be okay. And and speaking of film while we're on it, do you have any favorite means of buying film? Like, do you buy it in bulk? Do you use, like, one, like, retailer? Do you just kind of search around the end line for whoever's selling it cheapest? Like, what is your method? Yeah, I, I try to at least buy film at local shops. So I live in Denver and there's like two or three really good local camera shops and they have a pretty good job of stocking film. Uh, what of course you don't want to do is you don't want to go in there and buy it all. Yeah. So I'll, you know, I'll buy a couple of rolls from them. And then if I am going on like a big trip where I'm gone for a week, I'll just buy it through B and H and they always have really good inventory of film. So B and H and then local shops, but just keeping in mind, you don't want to go there and buy everything up because people might, want to get a roll themselves. So kind of like a dual process. Yeah. I mean, it, it makes sense. Um, and I, it's, I think the last parting on this, like kind of getting into this becoming like how to get in film photography one-on-one, which I, I love. Cause I think there are people out there that have always been interested by it, but I've thought there's, there is a large learning curve and there's a large financial investment, but it really doesn't have to be, you know, you can go online, buy an old point and shoot, uh, for, you know, you can get a really nice one for like 50 to a hundred bucks. Um, like it's going to be old, it's going to be used, but it still probably works. probably takes a battery. You can only buy it like a CVS in the weird battery section. Um, but like, you know, buy a couple rolls of film and try it out. And like, I always tell people is like, go try out that before you say like, Oh, I'm going to go buy a used Leica and buy a hundred rolls of portrait 400 and, you know, go walk around for the week with my friends in New York. It's like, before you go do that, um, (laughs) please go try it because you might hate it. And also realize that like even if you spent the ten grand on the Leica and a hundred rolls of film, you're probably gonna spend another couple grand on the processing and scanning. So um so actually I have a question that I just I, I didn't follow up with you earlier on. So you select certain frames from a uh, a set that you will then go get scanned. What do you do with the rest of the scan, uh, the, the, the negatives, do you put them in like binders? Do you store them in like cabin? Like what, what do you do? Yeah, I put them in binders and this is kind of like the unsexy part of film photography is like, at least I'm not like the most organized person. So I'll put them in binders and then put them in a box 
and they usually don't see the light of day for a while. But the reason why I like to individually cut them out is it's good for cost savings. That way you're not scanning the entire roll. Cause I mean, let's be honest, not every shot's going to be a banger. So I like to individually cut them out, send them to the lab. And then, yeah, I just put them in like what they call like archival sleeves in a binder Mm -hmm. and then a box in the black. And then, you know, what's kind of cool too is like, you know, it might be like a Tuesday night or something. You could just kind of dig through them and like review them. So it's kind of cool to like go back to old shots and like kind of take your time and be like, you know, you might find a, a diamond in the rough again. Yeah. I, I, so I guess my question is if this ever became more of a full-time hobby and there was some kind of financial, uh, let's say momentum behind it, would you consider just, just start scanning your entire, uh, roles, um, just to, just to see, like, just to have them. And would you then go back and get the rest of your photos scanned that live in the binder just to maybe find those shots that like, cause there are some shots that I, at least back in my day, if I remember correctly, um, that like on a negative form didn't look as good as they did printed or scanned. Mm. Um, how do you feel about that? Uh, I'll be honest with you, Rob. I, into your audience here, not every, I probably have a hit percentage. Let's say there's 10 shots on a roll. And when I say hit percentage, something that I think is like print worthy mm-hmm. of honestly, maybe, maybe two to three. And what I've actually noticed myself doing lately is like, I think the longer you shoot, the more kind of the more hard on yourself you are. So like, I feel like I shoot more pictures. Well, the more photos I shoot, I think I have a lower hit percentage and maybe that's just Hmm. me being more particular, but like, sometimes I'm like, am I getting worse? Cause I'll review my shots. I'm like, ah, these aren't very good. Whereas, but you know, maybe two, three years ago, I'm like, oh, these are great. So I've, I've noticed the more you shoot kind of the more you're particular and more you're like kind of have the discerning eye. So I actually feel like kind of my hit ratio has gone down quite a bit, but I think that's just me being more particular, but um, to kind of go back to the question. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's a good thing. Cause you know, you're being more cognizant of what you like and what you think, you know, works for your ethos and that like, you know, what do you think was a great photo four years ago? Might not have that same kind of spell on you today, but yeah, going back to your question, it just would not be time efficient to scan everything at home, but I really like just kind of shooting a bunch of one-offs and that kind of speaks to my nature of just like going to a location and maybe walking away with like one or two really good shots. If I even get those and not, That's great. you know, kind of blasting the scene with every possible like depth of field or anything like that. Yeah. I, and I, I appreciate that. And I think that is the right approach. Um, but I think more from just like an archival perspective, like if you could get all of your old scans, like all of your old negatives scanned just to like have oh, that. Oh, I'd love that. See what you're thinking? Yeah. For sure. That's cool. Because that's the thing is, that even though if a photo is not like print quality, I think that like every photo you take, especially with film, like it still has, a, there's still a story behind it, right? Even if it's kind of like blurry or it wasn't the right thing, like you still, I, at least when I take a photo, I remember like, Mostly like, oh, this is what I was thinking and doing at that time. You know, it's like, oh, okay. I've seen this really cool, I don't want to call it a trend, but I've seen this thing on Instagram where you can actually buy old boxes of film on like eBay, you know, like for 10 bucks. It's like a mystery box, right? Yeah. And you get, you know, slides or old negatives and people like scan them and process them and share them online. And they're really cool. Like it's definitely a time capsule. A lot of the people are getting photos from like, you know, the 40s and 50s and it's a cool time warp. So yeah, I mean- looking back on old photos definitely tells that story. Yeah. And then at least for me, like I, my parents shot so many pictures of us as kids. Um, there are just 
boxes and boxes and boxes of 35 mil negatives that I am just salivating over scanning. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I know that some of them are printed, but I know like also like some of the pictures have faded. Cause my parents did the thing back at, uh, there's this place in town called nobles. Um, it was like a big chain in new England, um, where you would drop off your film and they would give you this little, like, uh, kind of vinyl portfolio, which had the, um, like five by sevens of every one of your shots on one side and then the negatives and like already cut out and in, in like they're six, six long kind of size on the right hand side. So like the little folio. So my parents had like dozens of these folios. And then I think it can be hundreds of these folios. And they eventually all took out the photos to use them for like photo albums or scrapbooks or give them around. So like, I know there been photos have been lost or damaged. So I'm really curious to get the originals. And also like, I want them scanned so that I can always reprint them if I want to. And also like, cause I, feel much better about having the negatives and scans of them than just the negatives and prints of them, as I'm sure you're well, very well aware of. Um, it's just like a security thing. But yeah, so I'm definitely, that's a project that I'm looking forward to doing. But I'm going to buy my own scanner yeah. and, and do that because it's just, I can't afford to scan 10,000. But my dad just retired and one of his retirement projects is to get through scanning all those old 35 negatives. I don't think he's going to get through it. It's going to take him forever. But totally. it is funny to your point of like having safety in the, the originals and the digital copies. Cause I remember growing up, we had this, you know, fire drill. My parents were like, okay, if the house is ever burning down, make sure everything's out, you know, the safety, pets, all that. Yeah. But also make sure you get the baby photos. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's 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 what I love. Um, but but to to your to this your dad, if he's interested, um, I did a lot of research a while back on like getting my own scanner. Um, because I basically thought, saw it as like a therapeutic thing to do. And I could like, my mom wanted to help me, excuse me. And my, and like, I, I think it'd just be fun thing that to also have and, and have access to. Um, so Epson makes this scanner called the perfection V eight fifty, which is a terrible name. Um, but it, it actually is like this, uh, it, it has a resolution, I think up to, um, you can scan 35 millimeter at 4,800 DPI, which is like, as, as you know, like pretty much TIFF quality images. Um, and it has this little kind of template, I guess you could say that allows you to put, uh, 18, 35 mil, um, negatives. Like it's like basically three, six long strips inside the, this kind of template that scans it all at once. And actually the software will, pull each individual photo and make it his own file. So that's like saving you a lot of time. So I was actually doing the math. I was like, it takes about a minute to set up the tray and a minute, it takes a minute to scan it. And it is 18 at a time. So even if I have a thousand images, like I could still do it in a day, um, which is like really tempting. And like the thousand dollar investment of the scanner, like doesn't seem that bad at that point, you know? Um, yeah, it's definitely cheaper than scanner, actually. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. And that's a scanner I have too, but having a Husky, literally makes it impossible so those scanners at home definitely work just if you have very hairy dogs make sure they stay away or you have like a designated lab for it (laughs) or get one of the like a couple of those canisters of the of the air that just allows it to you know you just blow each one out um yeah they go blast it with yeah the rocket air (laughs) yeah the important thing is is for me is my father um i know he's behind listening to these so i can probably say this um he has boxes and i mean like large size moving boxes 18 by 18 by 18 inches of old slide film um that he basically used to exclusively shoot slide film so he could because his parents would always want to see photos from his trip because he traveled a lot especially in india back in the 70s and early 80s and so he has this like treasure trove of like 
lifestyle shots in India from the 80s that I just mm-hmm. want to get scanned because I just I just and he had he always had a good eye. I mean, he's an architect. He's an artist. Um, so so like that to me would be something that I think he would really appreciate because he he just same thing now. Like he just wants to see the photos and be able to like pull them up on his iPad and look through them one day, you know. Um, but this scanner, as far as I know, also has like a has like a template that you can throw like 12 slides in. I think it'd be fun to like my sister and I sit down for a weekend and just do it and gift that to him, you know. Um, cause that's the kind of gift that like, you know, that's, that's way better than buying anything in my mind. Um, yeah. Photography from the eighties sounds like, um, the really famous guy, Steve. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. His, his work's insane. Yep. His work's insane. Um, yeah. yeah, Steve McCurry is, is, is someone I forget, but I have a few of his books and every time I look through them, for people that don't know him, he's if you think about that famous National Geographic cover of the the woman from the Middle East, like that was him. Um, and I think most people, when I say that, yeah, especially very the, green eyes, yeah, green eyes. Anyone older than probably thirty knows exactly what I'm talking about right now. Um, anyone younger, Google it. <laughs> um, so, so to kind of wrap up this this segment on this, um, do you do you do you like? are there any digital photographers you look up to like people that don't shoot film or maybe used to shoot film, um, that you still like love looking at their work. Um, you love maybe their composition or, or their, their ethos in, in doing it. Um, there is one. Yeah. So there's a digital photographer. Most people probably know him. His name is Mark Adamus. Mm-hmm. And what's really great about him is he has his own unique style. Now, a lot of people try to emulate it over the, over the decade. But what's really great about him, and he goes to locations that have probably never been photographed before. Like he'll go on like these helicopters, be dropped off and like backpacked for like a week out in like the Yukon in winter. And he comes back with some incredible images and he does a lot of very kind of, it almost looks like fantastic. It's, it kind of blurs the line between photography and art. And he gets these images that are absolutely incredible and that people really try to like try to copy later but yeah mark adamus is probably one of the most unique photographers digital or film in the industry today and he's been doing some incredible stuff amazing i love that um so your instagram profile um at like on the top header uh basically kind of like geolocates you to the american west and that's definitely like all of the shots i can see at least scrolling i do see some like most of it, it seems like Wyoming, Colorado, and that general region. I see some California. I see, I see, like I can see Alabama Hills. I see, it looks like the coast of Oregon or Washington. So, like that's that's your kind of general area. But I mean, is there anywhere else in the world you'd love to shoot? Like, if you had like a week that was paid for and you could just go and shoot, where where would you want to go next? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, that has definitely become my brand and something I really love to shoot. I don't know if this counts necessarily as like around the world, but I do want to go to Banff. You mentioned that mm. earlier in the podcast. Banff is insane. Um, <laughs> yeah, it still speaks to like for me, big mountains and alpine lakes and that sort of thing. I've tried going there twice the last two summers, but of course, COVID's kind of thrown that for a loop. But mm-hmm. I'm hoping next summer will be good. But yeah, Banff is definitely on the list of like quote international <laughs> travel for me. But other than that, yeah, it's definitely focused primarily on the West. Yeah. Um, and and so my my only tip for Banff for you or anyone listening is like the 
my favorite time. I've only been once, and I just I think I just happened to nail the timing. Was like the huh? end, very end of May, like right after Memorial Day, because everyone Memorial Day is like obviously people go there for the holiday, but right after that, it's it's not busy. The campgrounds have plenty of availability, but there's still snow on a lot of the tops of the mountains, and it's still just cold enough where like the light is really interesting. Like during the day, it's like kind of it's bright it's not really very interesting but you get these like super long golden hours like i remember sitting on the edge of moraine lake at banff for like three hours and they're just watching the light change go all the way into stars and like i was like okay and the light was like literally different every minute and i was like okay this is cool <laughs> um in late may do you have um some kind of melting in the lake can, can you see the alpine lake in oh yeah yeah so so the okay, okay. It, obviously, it depends on the season, right? This was 2016 when I was there. Um, so obviously, a colder season might, uh, with more snow melt, might might uh, might have some chunks of ice in the lake. But like the lake was completely thawed, it was like bright blue, and the mountains had like half covering of snow. So it was like the it was like yeah. the beauty of both worlds. But you also, as you know, had like the late May getting into the brighter days of like really long golden hour, especially a place that far north. Um, I'm pretty sure golden hour was That's two hours. That's a perfect window. Yeah. And you probably beat a lot of the crowds too that probably get there Correct. in like July, August. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I always tell people like Iceland, same thing. Um, I've been in early mid May and I've been in July. Um, and I loved being in early mid May. It was a lot colder, but it was a lot deader. Um, and the time that everyone tells me to go to Iceland is like right now because everyone's kind of gearing up for holidays. It's getting really cold. The snow is coming in. But like if you like, epic landscapes um and like the only window to shoot is this like seven hour chunk in the middle of the day where it's basically like golden hour and then it goes back down to being dark so you have like a lot of light to play with <laughs> and also yeah. not a lot of light to play with which is just awesome and also half the time like because it's so cloudy and overcast there during the winter time because of the storms um you basically oh even in the, even in like the brightest and you always have like diffused light so there's really, you can go out and shoot all day and the day is like maybe seven hours in the winter, max more like four or five on like the darkest of days. But like you have all this time to shoot, which is I think really cool. I mean, now you're speaking my language. <laughs> um, so yeah, um, and, and off this kind of like dream location scenario, obviously you seem like a big fan of the camera you shoot now. Is there like a, like no budget, like uh, kit you'd love to have? Like maybe an old Hasselblad medium format or something like that? I uh, actually just shot a Hasselblad for the first time last month, and I thought that was just really an incredible camera. It's like the cameras built like in the 50s and 60s. I mean, they were meant to last decades. Yeah, they went to the moon. It's not like cameras <laughs> now where they know the shelf life. They're like, okay, these things will turn out in like three years. Yeah. That thing, that was just a beautiful piece of equipment, like looking into the, the ground glass, that mirror. Super beautiful. Like I do love old retro cameras. Now, I don't think I would want to buy something like that but mm. maybe like a kind of a, a 35 millimeter i can just kind of do kind of in between stuff like that leica yeah but then again you mentioned the price point on that it's pretty astronomical yeah so i guess that's my question like would you prefer to buy if you're if you were to get a leica um just say the m6 which is like in my opinion that's my favorite of the leicas i mean it's very everyone's different um but you can get an old one that's vintage or you can get a brand new one um, and, and actually in price wise are not that far apart, um, because oh. of the, the market. Um, so I, some people are like, Oh, the, 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 the only problem I have with Phil and I'm sure you could bring this up is like, there's definitely a segment of people that are just assholes about it. Like they're like, these are the rules. 
It has to be a vintage thing. You can't shoot like this. And I'm just like, there are no rules. This is art. Like, you know, please leave other people alone. But you know, you know exactly who I'm talking about. Like, there are people out there in the film world that have followings that are just like super pretentious about it. Um, yeah, and that's I, one of the bad things about the community is like the pretentiousness. If there is that, you know, there's some there or kind of like the gatekeeping. But to your point, like whatever tool works for you, like definitely go for it. Like if you like a smaller film camera and it works for you, awesome. If you like kind of the big clunky ones, that's great. If you like the lightweight ones for hiking, I mean, that's, you know, each tool is going to fit the user the best. And yeah, to your point, like whatever works for you, like by all means, like I'm, I'm not like, I, I usually, you know, I, I speak well on the camera. I use my Mia seven, but like at the end of the day, you have to be pretty agnostic to like, what's going to work for you. If I had to lug around some big four by five camera, I'd probably hate photography. So whatever camera <laughs> yeah, totally. going to kind of get you out and shooting. And, you know, at the end of the day, like photography is meant to be fun. You know, yeah. it's not necessarily like an elitist club. So whatever camera is going to give you the most joy, then yeah, I think we're both all for that. Yeah. I, I do love the Hasselblad because as I'm a, I'm a big like NASA space enthusiast and like those are the cameras oh, yeah. they brought to the moon. Um, I think there's two Hasselblad just like stuck on the moon right now. They, they are. Yeah. So <laughs> because, because they were so heavy back in the days, I'm sure you, you feel, felt when you were shooting, um, shooting, uh, the Hasselblad, uh, you're shooting an older one. Do you know what, do you know what year it was from by chance? Uh, I think it was the 500 CM. It had like the, the, the crank on the side. It was silver yeah. and black. So probably fifties or maybe mm. early sixties, um, maybe even earlier, but yeah, that wasn't a light camera. Right. No, um, definitely not. And so basically back then, um, they even though how expensive they were, you know, Hasselblad was honored to be the camera company going to the moon. So obviously they gave NASA a couple of them. So the way NASA saw it is that camera, take the film with you, put it in a special canister to stop it from getting, you know, obliterated by any radiation in space. Mm -hmm. But they needed that weight for space rocks because they want that, you know, they realized like what's more important, bringing back an expensive camera or bringing back space rocks, which are literally priceless. You know, so, um, but to be fair, I'm sure in the future, some private company will get permission, go back up there and extricate those cameras and they'll sell at Sotheby's for an, an obscene amount of money. You know, I love it. You're always two steps ahead. I love it. <laughs> I will. I'm just trying to think like, I, I not always from like the investment money perspective, but like, I think everything has value and I'm a big believer in like the nose to tail idea of animals. Like if you, if you're going to be one that's eating meat, then make sure you're using the entire animal from nose to yeah. tail. Right. Um, I like, mean, those are going to be the most important, popular camera probably ever to this day. Sure. Yeah. And I, or put it in the Smithsonian, like, too. or in a museum, you know, like, let the world see it. Exactly. And what's actually really cool is the, if anyone still uses Flickr, <laughs> the official NASA, I just discovered this a couple months ago, they posted all of the film scans they took from the moon trips. So, like, if anyone thinks, like, oh, because, you know, the, the shots you see on the moon, they're, like, they're picture perfect, right? But yeah. a lot of the photos were really bad. Really bad. <laughs> a lot of them, like, cockeyed or, like, you know, there's something blocking it. NASA actually posted all of the film scans they took on the moon that you can find on Flickr. And it's really fascinating to go through them all because they're all kind of, like, B-roll stuff. But thankfully, they got just enough to really make those magazine covers. Yeah, I mean, the beautiful thing about NASA is that because it's a publicly funded enterprise, um, they legally have to, nowadays, um, any photos shot in the ISS or by probes in space or by, like, uh, any Martian rover have to be posted online and available for public use in 24 hours. So 
they basically over the past few year, past few decades have been like um, taking all the old stuff and digitizing them. So NASA basically, I think almost nowadays, every single photo ever shot from any of the original NASA missions from like 1950s to 19 up up until like when the space shuttle ended, like are all online either on Flickr or the Library of Congress site. You have free use to use them. Um, it's actually pretty amazing. Um, but it's, it's fun to look through cause there are literally millions of photos. Um, exactly. People might think, you know, those final f moon images were like too perfect too studio quality, but like really like their, their hit percentage was really bad. <laughs> Thankfully they yeah. got a couple of good ones, but yeah, the hit percentage is more, more like one in 10,000. It was not any yeah, exactly. higher than that. Yeah. But it makes sense. Like you, you're in this big clunky space suit carrying this heavy camera around space. And like, to be fair, like if I was on the moon, I'd be like, cool let's take some photos so i'm just like holy shit i'm on the moon like i'm just gonna go and try to remember this experience um yeah they weren't doing that for the gram back then they were just no. documenting it, getting a few and <laughs> not worrying no. about how many likes they'd get yeah but to be fair um there's this famous astronaut i forget his name and i was watching this like docuseries about it called when we left earth great series um and long story short uh when they tested the first like jetpack buck roger style jetpack in space um the the from the from the space shuttle they had him go um like a hundred yards off the spaceship and then there's this photo of like the sun coming the, sorry the the earth front and the dark side coming to view in the background with him just floating off in space and the the commander pulled up at the time they were shooting these uh, Nikon like the first Nikon big DSLRs. This is like the early two thousand uh, late sorry eight eighties or nineties. They were film cameras. Sorry. Um, and he's just like um, he saw this image. He's like, if I don't mess this up, I'm gonna get a magazine cover. And it's like <laughs> since this day become like one of the most popular images of space <laughs> ever. Um, and some of them knew. I think eventually knew. But I guess when you're on the moon, I think back then I, I agree. Um, so to kind of wrap up our, uh, photography 101, if someone goes through the process of, uh, buying a film camera or a camera or even their iPhone and just say they're out, um, in nature and they want to start getting into landscape photography, do you, do you have any tips in terms of like setting up that, that, that first shot or setting yeah, up how they would do it? For sure. I have a ton and I, I definitely want to keep it more basic for the folks listening. So you always hear like light is the most important thing, which it is. But I think maybe just going out beyond that just a little bit is clouds. So for my work and a lot of like, really, I think like the best landscape work or what can separate landscape images is getting the right clouds. So mm -hmm. what I mean by that is like, you need the right mix. Like you can't have a blank, like bluebird bald sky because it's just not very interesting. In the same token, you can't have a totally overcast day where the, the sun never pops through. So to really kind of optimize the best potential for good light is gonna be based on the cloud coverage. So what I do is I'm, I swear I'm like a meteor, like an amateur meteorologist where I'll check the forecast. <laughs> and what I like to do is like, let's say, so I live in Denver and if, let's say I want to take a sunset photo in Rocky Mountain National Park, which is like about a two hour drive. Yep. If I want to make the effort to go all the way up there, I want to make sure I have like favorable conditions. So not only just checking the forecast for the next day, what, what you want to do is check the hourly forecast and you want to see the percentage of the cloud coverage throughout the course of the day. So you want to see how cloudy it's going to be right at sunset. And 
what, what I use is a website called wonderground.com mm -hmm. and it'll show you the cloud percentage cover. And what you want to do is you want to make sure there's like, basically you want a party cloudly day. So cloud coverage in like maybe the 30 to 60%. So we'll, we'll call it partly cloudy. That gives you a really great opportunity to get color in the sky and also like light shining on like, let's say a mountain peak. So yeah. that'd be my number one tip is look at the forecast and look at the cloud coverage. If it's totally sunny, I would skip it. If it's totally overcast, I would also skip it. If it's partly cloudy, I would say go for it. So that'd be my tip number one. Uh, my tip number two is you always want to come into it with a bit of a game plan. So you want to do your research, meaning so let's say, again, you want to go to Rocky Mountain National Park and let's just say you're going to shoot a particular lake. Do a little research in advance just to make sure like is the shot you want, is it better at sunrise or sunset? So you might see a bunch of images online be like, yep, that's the one I want to get. You also want to make sure if that's a sunrise or sunset shot because if the sun's on the different part of the skyline, it's going to hit, let's say, a mountain peak at a different angle or not at all. So make sure you do your research in advance to say, okay, like this shot is going to be best done at sunset because the sun is going to hit the mountain peak. So clouds, research, and then finally, when you get to the location, you want to have like when you're, then of course, composing is a big component too. So like when you're composing images, and again, everyone has a different style, like that's what makes photography great. Just a general rule of thumb is like when you're shooting landscapes, you're at a scene, it's super beautiful. There's a lot going on. There's pretty trees, there's pretty clouds. There's, you know, a lake, there's an animal, whatever. Mm -hmm. You want to make sure when you're composing that like there is a focal point in the image. You don't want it so busy that like, someone looks at the image and like, okay, like it's really pretty, but like you want to really help direct someone's eye. So you want to compose it in a way that like simplifies it as best as you can. So like, totally. yeah, these trees might be pretty off in the corner, but like it might make the image kind of unbalanced. So when you're composing your shot, just make sure when you're looking through the camera that there is a point of interest in the actual frame. That'll go a super long way. And like, and then I would say lastly, like use your general photography principles, meaning like, you want to keep the horizon straight. Um, if there's any leading lines, so if there's like maybe a road leading up to it, that's really helpful to draw someone's eyes in. And then maybe another photography principle you'd want to use is like, let's say you're composing the image and it looks really nice, but let's say like one side of the frame is kind of heavy. Like let's say on the left side, there's a lot of action going on, but on the right side, it's kind of like blank. It's going to look really unbalanced. So you want to compose the image where there's something interesting on like the left side, the right side, and the top and the bottom. You just want it to be very harmonious. And of course, you know, this is very up for interpretation. It's subjective. But when, yeah, when you're composing, I would just say some general principles is have an actual point of interest and make sure the image is balanced. <laughs> yeah, that's perfect. I, I appreciate you kind of breaking that down. And I think people will mm -hmm. definitely get value from that um so to kind of wrap up this this episode uh i'm gonna get you out of here on a few um rapid fire questions um these are essentially sure. questions that um i pose almost every uh guest and you can answer them in as few or as many words as you'd like uh, there are no rules as i said before i'm a big big believer in that there are never any rules um if you had a billion dollars that you couldn't spend on yourself or your family members um what problem would you try and solve uh, a billion dollars yeah. and I couldn't 
Couldn't it be family related? Nope. Okay. Um, I saw, I think it's through Google. It's like a project to get internet access to remote locations. Mm. And what they do, so this is a billion dollars. We're not getting, yeah. giving everyone like a mobile device, but for a billion dollars, I think what this project does is they send up weather balloons that go up really high, like not yeah. satellites, Google but like X, in the yeah. upper atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And they're able to connect in remote locations, of course, give the area like underneath them internet locate access, which is, I think, fantastic, especially in, of course, developing countries. Now, I actually do kind of have mixed feelings on that. If it was like on like in the Western countries that are developed, like I do like the idea of just going on hikes that are like not internet access and you're like really off the grid. Yeah. Which I think like it's kind of like the last frontier of like kind of exploration. It's like, okay, like you tell people where you're going, but you you kind of like living off the grid a little bit. But yeah, billion dollar question or billion dollars into developing countries, I would do, I think it's called Project Loon and it's mm-hmm. through balloons, which is really neat. Yeah. And, and the, fortunately, I think they're about to can that project only oh, because cool. um, like with with something like Starlink, that's coming very quickly. Um, that provides a ah, lot right. more coverage, a lot faster. Um, and the problem with the weather balloons is like, they always had to have someone on the ground and they'd only stay in the air for a couple, couple like maybe a week tops. So they had someone uh, to relaunch one every single week. So I think it was used definitely like five, 10 years ago. I'm not trying to shoot on your idea, I promise. Yeah, I'm yeah, just, no. I, yeah. Um, But with like Starlink and then obviously other companies that are come along and make their own competitors, like Starlink is not going to be the first internet system. It's just like SpaceX is at the right time, the right place with the right engineering team and had the ability to launch these rockets. Like people don't realize that SpaceX has pretty much for the past year and a half launched three to four rockets not that's too many, two to three rockets a week of just more satellites. And so this idea of being off the grid, unfortunately, like it's going to have to become a choice and very soon. And like, at least for Starlink, basically the entire Pacific Northwest, including your backyard, Colorado, Wyoming, Montana, all of Banff, all of Alaska is already covered. So like, if you have satellite reception, you can get internet everywhere, which I mean, so hear me out, right? I am all for shutting off devices and living off the grid. I love it. But I also like the idea of like building out an adventure van, like a proper one, like my girlfriend and I could live in with a dog and then putting the receiver on the roof so that her and I could genuinely work remote. Like we could be on the side of the road, maybe in Blaine's Highway in Alaska, um, just like maybe we're just spending time up there and we could be on the side of the road and be able to like take a meeting or work or contact family. And then when you're done, you just shut it off. You know, like you just you just move on. And I think that it's going to it's going to force people. Unfortunately, most people are just going to keep using it more. But I think it's also going to force people like you and I to be like, okay, when are we going to, when are we going to choose to shut off? Um, there is also the beautiful aspect of like the safety issue, which I do think is. is of course. Yeah. I think that's number one. <laughs> number one, where it's just like, yeah. there are certain scenarios in the past, especially cause I, you know, used to live in Colorado and like mountain bike out in crazy places with my friends and some people get hurt and it's just like, okay, one of us has to ride an hour to go get someone to help them out versus like, it'd be awesome to be like, Hey, someone's really hurt. Uh, and luckily no one has ever hurt enough to cause a problem, but like there are definitely people that die every year that like us being able to talk to emergency services would have saved their life. Um, right. So I, That's the trump card that'll get me every time <laughs> on my argument. <laughs> yeah, I understand. But like, I mean, it's also with, with that, I think it's, it's also a natural selection, which I believe in strongly where it's like, if you do something stupid, then you might bear the consequences of that decision, you know, unfortunately, sorry. Um, but anyways, uh, next question. Is there a story that your family parents like to tell about you? 
Um, let's see here. It might not be photography related, but it doesn't have to be. Uh, it could be about you. Oh, yeah. Uh, I don't know if they still do field days anymore. That's like you know, it was the best thing ever. Like, yeah. Oh yeah, like God. three-legged race and <laughs> all that. Um, it was literally. So I was in kindergarten, and it was literally like the first event I ever did, and it was like that peanut race where you have a peanut and a spoon. Yeah. And you walk one side of the basketball court and the other side, and whoever finishes first without dropping the peanut wins. I remember I was doing it and I was winning and like, so I have a twin brother and I was looking for him the whole time. And I was like, just beating everyone. I was looking behind and I saw him. So I actually, I stopped at the finish line and waited for him to catch up. And we crossed at the same time, which is. That's awesome. <laughs> um, so they tell that story all the time. Quick foray into having a twin brother. Is he also in a photography by chance or no? No, no, he's not. He's um very, so it's interesting. He's very left brain, which is the kind of like analytical Mm-hmm. And then I'm very right brain, which is the creative side, which is just really fascinating because, you know, we're twins and genetically, you know, 99.9% similar. Yeah. But like the, I don't want to call it like the brain chemistry, but yeah, this totally different, you know, it's, um, that's cool. Though. Really called nature versus nurture. But in that regard, it's totally different. So yeah, he's not into photography, not that he doesn't appreciate photos, but I've, I've noticed there are just some people who just, that's not how like their brain works. They just don't find it necessarily interesting. Yeah, I've had a few conversations with people about photography and the beauty of it, and people are like, "But the iPhone is still like better than most big cameras, anyways." I'm like, "No, it's not." But like, it's all about what you want to do. They're like, "But yeah, but it's still taking a photo that looks good on my phone." So like, why does it matter? I'm like, I understand from like a pixels perspective, you are not sure. wrong, but I also want to smack you, you know. <laughs> and I think I think that's the like I love. I said this before, and so people on the podcast have heard me say this, but like I believe the meaning of life is to do things for the sake of doing it, and I think that's what art is. And I think film photography is a lot like that as well. Like you are doing it for the genuine joy and pleasure and sake of doing it, right? Like if you had to do it for an assignment or for work, like you'd be using digital or your phone. You wouldn't be using film to like post photos of sneakers on eBay, you know? A hundred percent. Yeah, it's like not a very medium and like i've missed a lot of shots but at the end of the day i just love film so much that i just keep coming back to it because yeah like i can have a digital camera and like blast away and like come away with like a safe shot you know but just the thrill and like like the perceived risk of not getting it is also kind of exhilarating like i'm doing it and there's no guarantees which is really cool to think about like i could put all this work in and of course, I'm saying this now, not missing a shot, but like perceived <laughs> yeah. risk. We'll say it now when I'm in a very you know calm state, but like that is another alluring prospect to it that keeps me coming back. Yeah, and it's it's I'm I'm really excited to get back into it. It's just gonna change my. I travel a lot for the work I do, and just because like my family's everywhere, um, and so like it's definitely gonna change my logistics perspective of like I just. You know, digital camera easy. just lives in my backpack. It stays there. It's pretty much always charged. And I put a massive memory card in it. So, like, I'm always pretty much good to go. Um, so, it's going to change that little logistical part of, of carrying around film and setting it off. But, I mean, I'll definitely connect with you online in terms of your favorite film processors. Because, like, it's one of those. It's, like, people are as opinionated as political parties when it comes to, like, where they like processing their film. Which I love. Like, I love the opinions. Even film stocks, I've seen massive amounts of hatred for certain film stocks like Ektar. People just, yeah, yeah, very people can be very opinionated in the photography space. But that's what know. I want, right? But like, I, I don't like. But I here's my problem: if someone says, um, 
like there are so many different mediums of film out there and like film types. You said like there's Ektar and there's Portra and like there's there's only two come enough to the top of my head right now, sadly. Um, But like, you know, no one's better than the other one. And like as soon as someone and as soon as anyone says something that's subjective and they're like, this is an objective truth, I usually tune that person out because it's it's a good like bellwether for the the rest of their thoughts. Mm -hmm. Um, I've learned that I've learned that in conversations. Like if I'm arguing with someone and I, I usually stop in the first minute and I say, so before we like spend the time on this, you know, is there anything I can say that would change your mind? Um, like I, I like I get down to it. Like, are you open to change your mind? Give a new information. If someone says no, I just usually walk away. Um, even members of my own family, I walk away from the conversation because, yeah. because like, unless I'm feeling spirited and want to just debate someone for the sake of debating with someone, which is rare. Um, like if I'm, I'm someone and I hope most people are as well. Um, I actually, most people aren't. And you can, this is obvious by like the current political system in this country and like people's political agencies, but, um, like given new information, I change my mind. You know, like I don't identify as like a certain party or a certain type of film or a certain type of clothing or a certain type of eating or a certain style of sleeping or whatever. It's like we learn so much every single day about everything. It'd be really dumb to kind of say like, this is my view. It's never changing, you know. Um, and I think a lot of people are like that. I think film is definitely one of those more subjective areas where like someone's just like, this is how I've done it for 20 years and it's perfect. And it's like, well, why try something new? You know, like maybe you enjoy it more. Right. I've seen a meme online where it's it's basically become a meme with some photographers that Ektar is so bad they throw it in a trash can. But like, if you're watching someone's video for the first time and they're you know throwing this film away, you know I might scare them away from trying something that could open a new door for them. So yeah, to your point, like if their bellwether is being very black and white about things, they might not be the best teacher for you. Yeah, and and not just that, like. I'm sure the people that are trashing on Ektar, I'm sure they there's at least one photographer they look up to that has a shot they love. They probably shot on Ektar. So like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, everyone's a hypocrite. It's just what area are you hypocrite on? You're right. <laughs> um, and so last question, um, if you could send a single push notification to everyone's phone in a given area, uh, where would it be and what would it say? Uh, like a push notification to like, you know, when you, yeah, you know, the message. no. So like, um, yeah. So like, you know, when you get like an emergency alert for like a storm or like an Amber alert, it like sends it to oh. everyone's phone, a certain area. So imagine you had that power and you could pick the area and pick what it said. Uh, where would it be? And what would it say? Um, let's see. I feel like I might be kind of cheesy and do like a some sort of like positive message. Um, I don't think that's cheesy. Yeah. So I think, well, one ethos I live by, and I don't think I'd blast this out to the public. One ethos I've I've heard that I really like is do the hard work, especially when you don't feel like it. I think that is universal to anything you do. I think it can really take you a long way, whether it's fitness, photography, work, um, just your general day to day. But if I'd probably go with a little bit of a softer message. Um, <laughs> there, there's a there's a, it's funny there's a car dealership right across from me, and they have a billboard that has all these like uplifting messages and i think the one they had last week which i'd maybe use for this question is their message said uh be yourself everyone is taken so i would do a very corny message like that yeah i love that um but it's it's so true right um especially with work and i love that you brought that up it's a lot of people ask me or you know like how did you start this podcast or like how did you get here it's like i worked at it you know 
And I think, unfortunately, there is a good portion of people that just don't want to put in the work. And that's fine. But like, understand that the the difference between where you are now and where you want to be, whether that's like a world-class photographer or a professional athlete or a millionaire who's built a successful company out of doing whatever they want to do, the the 90% of that difference between where you are and where you want to be is work. The other 10% is just luck and who you know. Um, but it's yeah, mostly I mean, work. <laughs> well, it's interesting. I have like, yeah, right. So I have in my Instagram, I have photos of just like animals that I've just walked into my frame and people are like, oh, like, how'd you get so lucky? And it's like, yeah, I suddenly got lucky. But at the same time, like luck definitely favors the persistence. Like for sure. Had I not been there like over and over and over again, like it would never happen. So yeah. So like, I think the harder you work at things, you get more lucky breaks. For sure. And also we know the photographers that will like, if they're out in the Tetons, they want that famous shot of like Grand Teton in the background with the ranches and, like and maybe a force. And a moose. they're like, they, yeah. they, it's pretty easy to figure out where the mooses go and where the horses go and just like, wait, you know, like exactly. that's just what, that's, what I, that's what I do too. Yep. <laughs> yeah. There's nothing wrong with that, you know, like, and at the same time too, like I go to these locations probably 10 times and I walk away with nothing. So that's also the draw of photography is like, you're not guaranteed anything. And but the beauty is you spent that time outside and you get to like, Enjoy oh yeah no it's, it's, <laughs> of course i love it of course cool well um is there anything else that you want to say mention the audience or plug before we get you out of here um i guess i'll just um i did open up a, my print shop so i finally have a print shop uh that can be found on my instagram so i'll plug that so my instagram is where i post all my current images and that name is at santo marco s-a-n T-O-M-A-R-C-O. And yeah, I'm pretty active on that. I try to post two new images a week. Um, so yeah, I can reach out to me with a message. I'm pretty open on that and I'm also pretty active. So that's the best way to, to find me. Awesome. Yeah. And then uh, you're also linked below in the show notes and mentioned in the beginning of this and the oh, this episode. So the, if, if at this point, if they still have a question of where to find you, then I can't really help yeah. them. So <laughs> All right. Well, um, Matt, thank you so much for your time today and uh, have a good rest of your night. Thank you, Rob. It's been an absolute pleasure. I hope you all enjoyed this episode between myself and Matt Santomarco. You can find Matt online at Santomarco. That's at S-A-N-T-O-M-A-R-C-O. And as always, you can find me at Rob Auchincloss. I hope you all have a fantastic day. Goodbye.